I want to look again at uh, verse 10, uh, the le- second sentence there, at the, and through 12. Paul writes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, and they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's a pretty pessimistic description of humanity, isn't it? I mean, no one does good. No one seeks after God. Nobody. Where does Paul get this idea that no one seeks after God? Well, probably in the first century, he just had to look around because the first century Greco-Roman world was very pagan. It was polytheistic. Many people worshipped all kinds of different gods, and they offered different sacrifices to different kinds of idols, and there was uh, prostitutes in the temples in Ephesus, and there were all kinds of horrible things happening. Sexual promiscuity was rampant in the Greco-Roman world. Orphans were being uh, neglected. Uh, Slaves and women were being abused and beaten. I mean, it was a horrible time. Sin was rampant, so it was very easy for Paul simply to look around and say, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Of course, here in the 21st century, I mean, we live in America, a much more sophisticated culture. Surely we have improved, right? No. (laughs) Just watch the news. You can see that we have not improved. Still, humanity wrestles and struggles with sin. In fact, John Calvin in the Reformation in the 16th century said this about the human nature. He says, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Even though Christianity is the majority religion in the world, even though most Americans would identify themselves as Christians still today, we're just as susceptible to bowing down and worshiping the idols of our culture as anyone was in the first century. The principal idols of our country today, of course, are materialism, money, right, success, power, prestige, and even sex. It's interesting, Timothy Keller has written a wonderful book called Counterfeit Gods. Counterfeit Gods, if you don't have that in your library, I would definitely check it out. Timothy Keller, uh, Presbyterian minister out of New York City and a professor, writes this wonderful book, Counterfeit Gods. And he, he defines an idol this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to us than God. An idol is anything more important to us than God. Keller points out that even good things like our, our jobs and our families and our businesses can be turned into idols if we pursue them more than we pursue God, if we focus more on them and in, in, in pursuing them rather than our relationship with God. In fact, you may remember last Sunday we talked about how uh, in Matthew 22 I made reference to that text where Jesus is asked by an expert in the law, a Pharisee, and he, he's asked, he says, what are the most important commandments? What's the most important commandment? And of course, there's 613 commandments in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible alone. And so Jesus is, says to him, he quotes the Shema first, Deuteronomy 6, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then Jesus says the second commandment is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus chapter 19. Jesus lets us know that all these 613 commandments can be summarized by these two simple commandments, love God, love neighbor. He's made it real simple for us to do, right? I think if you think about it, if you do these two things, if you love God and love your neighbor, well, the rest of the commandments fall into place. Think about the 10 commandments. The first four commandments, right, are all about God. If I love God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, then I won't worship other gods, I won't make idols, I won't misuse the Lord's name in vain, and I will honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. 
And if I love my neighbor as myself, then I will complete the remaining six commandments, right? Because if I'm loving my neighbor as myself, you know, that I'm going to naturally obey my mother and father and honor them. I'm going to not steal. I'm not going to murder. I'm not going to commit adultery. You know, I'm not going to covet my neighbor's things. I'm not going to murder like Cain murdered Abel. Yes, these two commandments are real simple. Love God, love neighbor. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't always do that, do we? Sometimes we fall short. In fact, the Greek word for sin that is used in Romans 3.23, amartano, amartano, literally means to fall short. It was a term that would often be used in archery to talk about how an archer would miss the mark, miss the target, fall short. That's why we read in Romans 3.23, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. This week, perhaps even this morning, we haven't done what we ought to do. Or maybe we've done things we know we shouldn't do. Now, the reality is that we're all sinners. We've inherited this sinful nature. We talked about that last week with our first parents, with Adam and Eve and their original sin. And now we've inherited this sinful nature that left our own is is prone to wander from God. And so Paul writes with great authority, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Of course, Paul doesn't make up these words. These come from Psalm 14. This is a quote from King David's psalm. King David lived in 1000 BC, a thousand years before Christ. King David could look at the lay of the land and see that there is no one who seeks after God. And, and then in the first century, Paul could look at his world and say, it's still true today. No one seeks after God on their own. It's true in the 21st century as well. For we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what should we do? Should we keep on sinning so that grace might abound? Well, Paul actually asks that question and answers it in Romans 6, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Or would he continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says, by no means is that God's intention. Yes, it's true. As we read, uh, if you've been with us the last several weeks, you know we've begun a journey through Genesis, going back to the very beginning. And we saw that in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, God creates humanity in his very image. Both male and female were created in the very image of God. And as God looks at his creation after he, he creates us on the sixth day, he looks at us and he goes, man, it is very good. We were very good for creating the very image of God. And we serve a, a loving, communal God, who, who, who's, who's a, a community that's so intimate that the three are one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's why God says, let us make man in our image. Yes, we were de- created to be a part of this divine community, this divine relationship with God, this loving relationship. But then as we saw a couple of weeks ago, beginning in Genesis 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, committed that original sin of, of, of breaking the one commandment that God had given to them. And when they broke that commandment, sin came into the world and their relationship with one another was strained. They realized they were naked and they tried to clothe themselves and their relationship with God was strained. In fact, even creation was corrupted for creation was cursed as God tells them in Genesis 3 that the ground will be cursed for Adam's sin. And that uh, he will have to now toil the, the ground and try to work it, but only thorns and thistles will come for him. It's all of creation was corrupted. In fact, in the Presbyterian church, we call this doctrine the, the doctrine of total depravity. There's no part of human nature that has not been somehow impacted by sin. Human will, human, human thoughts, human heart has all been impacted by sin so that left our own, we are prone to wander from God. We're, we're born sinful, as King David points out in Psalm 51. I was born out, out of my mother's womb, I came sinful at birth. You know, we understand that 
Well, that if you get two babies and you have one toy, they're going to fight, right? And that's what happens because we're selfish and we're sinful naturally. So we need something to happen. We need God to, to act. So what are we to do? Well, this doctrine of total depravity is actually really communicated well in the Heidelberg Catechism in question number seven. And I think I'm going to ask the question if you could answer it. And again, this came from the Reformation uh, about the time the Presbyterian Church was kind of coming together. And the Heidelberg Catechism was it really written to teach what the Bible already teaches. So it's kind of a summary of the faith. And, and so I'm going to ask the question, and then you answer it with me, okay? Where then does this corruption of human nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, from this, our human life is so poisoned that we are all conceived and born in the state of sin. So what are we to do? I was born sinful. Is there any hope for me? It's interesting, as we continue our journey through Genesis, we'll see that Adam and Eve commit this original sin, and then God is still gracious, though. God is still merciful, for he allows Adam and Eve to give birth to a boy named Cain. In fact, Eve recognizes this as the, with the help of the Lord. I have given birth to a man, Cain. And then she has Cain, and then she has Abel. But the sin of Cain is so great, and his jealousy of his younger brother Abel is so great that he kills his brother Abel, and sin continues to spread. And it continues to spread through humanity. As you continue to go through Genesis, you're going to see that, well, God becomes grieved that he's created humanity because the inclination of their heart is only towards evil, only towards sin. But there's one man, one man who proves to be righteous, one man that God looks upon with favor. In fact, he's the first man to be described as righteous in the Old Testament. It's the first time the Hebrew word righteous is used to describe a person. To see who that man was and what it was that made him righteous so that we might learn from him and leave our natural life of sin, please turn to Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 5. Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 5. But before I read God's word... Let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that as we turn to your word this morning, Lord, that you, by your spirit, speak to us. I pray, Lord, that we might hear from you, that you might open our hearts and minds, that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word, that we might leave this room forever changed by your spirit as our eyes open to who you are and who you're calling us to be, and we might learn from this story how we might more faithfully walk with you. I pray, O oh Lord, that the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Genesis chapter six, beginning with verse five. Listen to God's word. These are the generations of Noah. Noah, oh, I'm sorry. I skipped a little early. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. I want to pause there just for a moment. It grieved God. Our sin grieves God. You know, as I grew up as a little boy in West Texas, I always thought that my sin made God mad because when I would sin, my parents would get mad, right? So I figured, I sin, you know, my parents get mad, God must get mad at me when I, when I sin. Well, the fact is that actually it grieves God because God loves us. God created us in his image, and when we reject his law and we do our own thing rather than what he calls us to do, rather than pursuing his holiness, well, we, don't, we no longer reflect 
his good nature and his holiness. In fact, God has given us commandments for our good. It's for our good that he told us not to steal and not to commit adultery and not to murder and and not to covet. Those are bad things. That's not good for our soul to do those things. And yet when we do those things, it grieves God because he knows that we were created for something better. We're not living into the life that God has called us to. God wants what's best for us. That's why he gave us his commandments, so that we might have what's best if we simply obey. As it grieved God, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of everything of all the flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to look again at verse 9 of our text. The second sentence there. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, this is the first time, as I mentioned a moment ago, that this Hebrew word for righteous is used. What does it mean to be righteous exactly? Well, this Hebrew word for righteous can also be translated as upright or just or innocent. And we know from the rest of the Bible that, well, to be righteous in the eyes of God is to to be in a right relationship with God. And this relationship with God begins with faith. In fact, we can read in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews describes uh, Noah and his great faith. In Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 7, we read, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 
Noah was declared to be righteous because he had faith, and in his faith, he walked with God. And in walking with God, we can read in verse 22 of our text in Genesis 6, it says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah built this ark. Now, can you imagine how hard that must have been? Can you imagine how long it must have taken Noah to build an ark? Did he even know what an ark was? I mean, nobody had ever built an ark before. It's kind of interesting. Uh, the word ark there can also be, the Hebrew word can also be translated as casket or coffin. So God tells him to build an ark, you know, and he's like, you want a casket? I mean, that's pretty depressing. In fact, if you read the verses here, verse 13, when God's speaking to Noah, he says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark, a coffin, a casket. Noah's like, what? I don't want to do that. (laughs) Of course, as we continue to read, we can see that this ark proves to be a huge boat. And I mean huge. It is 300 cubits in length. It's 50 cubits wide, and it's 30 cubits high. Now, a cubit is actually 18 inches. So for us in our measurement system today, it's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. The thing is huge. In fact, there's a man in Kentucky, uh, and I think Phyllis is from Kentucky, if she's still here. But they uh, built, it's called the Ark Encounter. Uh, they have built a life-size replica of the Ark as it's described in Genesis. It is tremendous. In fact, that's the ramp you have to walk up in order to get inside the Ark. And those are full-size trees. You can see a, a full-size tree seems minuscule compared to this Ark. And you can go online uh, to the Ark Encounter and take a virtual tour of this Ark. It is tremendous. It is huge. Can you imagine how long it must have taken Noah to build the ark? It took over a thousand men over 18 months to build the ark in Kentucky. How long do you think it took Noah and his sons to build the ark? And how, what do you think people were saying to Noah as he's trying to build this huge boat, right? Like, Noah, we live on dry land. Why are you building that boat? How are you going to get that boat to the sea? Noah, what are you doing? Why are you wasting all this wood? Noah, what are you thinking? Why are you wasting all this money? Why are you wasting your time, Noah? But despite the ridicule, Despite the challenges that he certainly faced, Noah continued to persevere. He continued to try to do what God commanded him to do. How is it that Noah was able to to do this, to persevere? Why is it that when God saw Noah, he saw and saw someone who had favor in his eyes? Why is it that Noah is called righteous? Because Noah walked with God. He walked with God each and every day. So what does that look like for you and me today to to walk with God exactly? Well, this summer I was blessed. uh, I know the pandemic has some blessings and curses. One of the blessings of the pandemic is it got my wife and I to take these morning walks in the summer specifically. We'd wake up early and brew our coffee and we'd take a little tour around our neighborhood. And and as we were walking, we would talk, you know, and she would talk about her day and I'd listen and then I'd talk about my day and she would listen and we'd interact about that. And then we would talk about the week and then we'd talk about sometimes even the year, what we plan to do 10 years from now. And, you know, there's a lot of great thinking, a lot of good discussion can happen as you're you're walking. In fact, uh, Steve Jobs, uh, the founder of uh, Apple and the iPhone, uh, he used to take these business meetings, and they're called walking meetings, where he would go with his staff to walk, to brainstorm. In fact, there was a study at Stanford that found that actually walking allows you to become more creative. As you have this kinetic energy, you have new thoughts come to mind, you're able to get creative and start thinking new things and new ideas. And so to walk with God for us today is to make sure that we're spending time with God. 
And one of my favorite spiritual practices uh, lately has been to, to put in my headphones and I, I turn on my iPhone and I've got some praise music that I'll play and I will literally have those headphones, those earbuds in and I'll just go walking in the midst of God's creation. And as I see his creation, and as I read the book of nature, for God has revealed himself through his creation, I experience God's presence afresh and new and I'm encouraged to know that yes, God is with me, God is great. I find that my prayers turn towards thanksgiving as I walk with God, literally with earbuds, praising God and talking to him. But how else are we to, to walk with God today? Well, for us, if we really want to walk with God, we've got to walk with his son, Jesus, specifically. For Jesus, as we, as we know from the Gospel of John, he's the word made flesh. He, he's God incarnate. He's, he's the full expression of who God is and, and who God wants us to be. We, we had the, the written word for many, many centuries, but we weren't very good at obeying it. So God gave us his living word, Jesus Christ, well, to do for us what we can never do for ourselves, he lived in perfect obedience to the word of God. He, he demonstrated what it means to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. He showed us what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. And then ultimately, he fulfilled the sacrificial requirements of the law when he died as the perfect sacrifice on a cross for our sins. And then on the third day, he rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf. And, and now he sent his Holy Spirit to inhabit our hearts if we'll walk with him. So how do we walk with Jesus exactly? Well, I think we first we've got to listen to Jesus. We've got to listen to Jesus. We walk with listen to Jesus by listening to Jesus. Specifically, I would encourage you to read one of the Gospels. I just encourage the kids to read the Gospel of Mark. If you've never read the Gospel of Mark, start there. Or you can do what David Mullen and I are doing. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount right now. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. And for the next 30 days, I'm reading that every day, just going through it. And it's amazing. As you read these words of Jesus, you'll find that they begin to inhabit your thinking. You'll be reminded of how Jesus tells us to love our neighbors ourselves, to treat others the way we would like to be treated. You'll be reminded that blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And so you're moved to do acts of mercy, like we went to San Jacinto this uh, last uh, Saturday, just yesterday, and helped clean up that neighborhood. Or you'll be moved to forgive those who persecute you and to pray for them, just as Jesus instructs us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, as you read the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus says some pretty challenging words. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not about you, but I read those words. It, it kind of scares me just a little bit. Because I don't remember me ever casting demons in the name of Jesus. I've never cast out a, a demon before. These guys who are saying, Lord, Lord, are doing some pretty impressive things. They're casting out demons. They're prophesying. They're doing many, many mighty works. But the problem is they don't know Jesus. They don't have a relationship with him. They're not walking with Jesus. Thanks be to God that my entrance and our entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not based on what we do, but on who we know. Do you know Jesus? Are you walking with Jesus? The best way for us to walk with Jesus today is to begin by listening to Jesus every day, taking time to read one of the Gospels every morning. Listen to the words of Jesus. But then as we listen to Jesus, we want to talk with Jesus. And we talk with Jesus, of course, through prayer. 
in the Sermon on the Mount. Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer where Jesus instructs us how we ought to pray. He says, and when you pray, the assumption is that we are going to be praying people, praying every day. And he gives us this model prayer, the perfect prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which we will pray here in a moment with Murray, where we, where we ask, and if you look at the prayer, think about it just for a moment, the first three petitions are really about God's will. We ask that his, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. The first three petitions are all about God. And then we go to the three petitions for us that give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation because we can't handle it, Lord. We walk with Jesus by listening to Jesus and talking with Jesus through prayer. And the Lord's Prayer gives us a model prayer by beginning by talking about what God wants for this world and what God's will might be done. And, And we focus on God and then we turn to our own needs and our own supplications And then, after listening to Jesus, talking with Jesus, ultimately, we need to obey Jesus. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, I love what Jesus says. He he gives this story. He says, you know, those of you who have heard my word today, if you do what I say, you're like a man who built his house on a rock. And when the storms came and the wind blew and the flood came, the house stood strong because it was built on the rock. But those who hear my word and do not do what I say, you're like a fool who built his house on sand. And when the winds come, and the rains come, and the floods come, great was the fall of that house because it was built on shifting sand. In 304, just a few moments ago, I asked the kids, have you ever built a sandcastle on the beach before? And everybody raised their hand. I said, what happens when the tide comes? That sandcastle washes away because it's built on shifting sand. Notice that the storm comes for the person who built his house on the rock and the person who built his house on the sand. Jesus tells us in John 16, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. If we will walk with Jesus by listening to Jesus, by reading his word, talking to Jesus, by praying to him, and then seeking to obey Jesus by following what he says to do, asking the Holy Spirit to empower us to to do his will here on earth as it is in heaven. And our house will be built on the rock of Christ Jesus. So when the storm comes, and it will come, when each one of us faces the unthinkable or the unexpected, we will be prepared because Christ is the solid rock on which we stand. Who are you walking with today? Who are you listening to? Who are you following? Because that makes all the difference. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, I pray that each one of us would take the time we need to walk with you. As Noah walked with you, I pray that would describe us as well, that we might walk with you, Lord Jesus, that we might listen to you by reading and meditating on your word, that we might talk with you each day by praying, and Lord, that we might seek to obey and follow you, doing what you've called us to do. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, help us to do your will here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen.